Hi, my name is Stuart Alsop, and this is my podcast, Crazy Wisdom, where I interview creative people about how they work with and manage the stress that is inherent in creative work. What I've realized over the past 10 years of my research is that anybody who is creating something of value that is significantly different from what has come before is considered crazy. Most of us have a fear, an ingrained fear of going crazy. Uh, so what I'm saying is grab onto that fear, realize that it's there, and just go with it because the problems we're going to be facing over the next 20 years require crazy people in order to solve them. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today, my guest is Brian Chen. He is the CEO and co-founder of Room. Uh, really excited to have you on the show today, Brian. Thanks for having me. Uh, so for my listeners, can you explain more about Room? Yeah, Room is, uh, we're a startup. We're about just over two years old. We're on a mission to reimagine the modern workplace. Uh, our first product is a flat-packed, soundproof phone booth. It assembles on site and is really designed to solve the problems of noise and privacy in the open floor plan, uh, which is something that really drives uh, a lot of people crazy today. And it's really interesting because as we've ha been having our pre-interview chat, uh, there was a couple times where you opened the door uh, and I was, I was able to hear what's going on outside and I can't hear it right now. Um, so that's a really good good sign from this side uh, and then the other thing is that you don't need a microphone in there right now you're just kind of you're it's set up to basically do podcasting so this leads me to the question are are there a lot of people using room to record podcasts there are actually uh you know i, I do think though that um uh, one of the you the, the most uh common use cases is video conferencing and phone calls right so mm -hmm. the internal acoustic environment is very very important um, and it's something that we focus on from a very early stage. Hmm. And so where did this idea come from? It's funny. Um, it's kind of a, maybe an unusual origin story. Um, but I had just left my uh, last startup. Uh, so I had previously been a co-founder of a company called Blue Smart um, and led the operations for that company. I left at the beginning of 2017, and a couple of friends of mine um, from the Y Combinator network, uh, which I went through with the last company, approached me with an idea. They were like, hey, we have this problem um, uh, of noise and privacy in the office and not having places for employees to make phone calls. Um, and they presented me with the opportunity to um, to try to start make to, to make a company out of it. Uh, at first, honestly, I thought it was um, a a joke. <laughs> um, I wasn't sure uh, what to make of the concept of a flat packed phone booth. But really, over time, um, I became fascinated with the implications of what a soundproof flat packed phone booth could mean for the office. Uh, it, as I looked into it and understood the problem that it was solving, uh, I realized that like a phone booth is just has all these magical attributes. Um, first, it, it really changes the way people use an office. Like if you don't have to go out into the hallway, you don't have to go into the, onto the sidewalk to take a personal phone call, but you just step into uh, a phone booth next to your desk. That makes a huge impact. Um, in terms of how you're using office real estate. It also has a really meaningful impact in terms of health and wellness in the office. Um, and, you know, personally, I've experienced times when uh, just like the distraction that comes from not being able to focus and not being able to get away from, you know, listening to your colleagues converse, uh, it can drive you crazy. So I saw in our first prototypes, just how, how much of a difference it made in my own personal kind of well-being <laughs> during the working hours. Um, and then I also realized that the alternative to 
a phone booth, a modular phone booth is construction. That, you know, if, if you don't have a modular phone booth, but you want to build one, then you have to talk to your landlord, get a building permit, uh, hire a general contractor, reroute HVAC and uh, electricity and all this kind of stuff. And it probably costs you fifteen or $20,000. Uh, so all of these things made me realize that a phone booth is a truly unique product category and one that is just going to totally change the way that offices are built and deployed. Uh, and yeah, that's how, that's how it got started. Uh, the idea came to me and I got really excited <laughs> about uh, all of its implications. And there's a few things that I want to talk about there because the first one being open office plan, and then I want to put a pen in something else, which is the modular thing that you're talking about as well. And so the 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 open office plan is a nightmare. Like for me, for me personally, I hesitate to say that I'm an introvert, but I would I really like having walls around me. And uh, uh, if I'm doing deep work, I don't want other people around me. Um, and so I like abhor the day that I will ever have to be in an open office again. Um, and I think the evidence also shows that people are less productive in those environments as well. Uh, and so it's an interesting insight that you guys have into creating this thing. And then this leads to the, the modular aspect of it. I once had a conversation, which I still haven't published because the audio was really bad um, with a guy named Luke Iceman, who uh, he ran hardware for YC, right? Exactly. Yeah. And he, he, he was, uh, at the time he was out, out in Oakland building these crazy, um, uh, modular homes basically, uh, that were shipping containers and stuff like that. And that, and I've always, I've had this idea. I think, I think I saw somebody else do it, but basically just like a modular toilet or a modular, uh, sewer system, uh, that can be plugged into any sort of, uh, any sort of these, these smaller homes. And, and, and I, I think that would be really interesting as well, but it's like, you, you know, you have, you might have a background in software, uh, and, and it seems to be that in software you make things modular so you can plug and play. And now we're seeing that in the rest of the world as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so, uh, you know, about the open floor plans first, I think that was the, the first thing you, you wanted to talk about. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's really crazy how much, distress open floor plans cause people. If you do a quick uh, Google search for open floor plan noise, what you get is a very long list of just frustration and vitriol. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's kind of crazy how much passion there is around um, uh, how, how much people hate open floor plan. It's over 50% of, of working Americans who have complained to their bosses about noise. Um, and it, so it's not just the the biggest problem from a productivity perspective, but actually like there are also studies that show that collaboration actually declines in open floor plans. Uh, there is a fit like a pretty well known now um, HBS study uh, from last summer that basically showed contrary to like the intention of open floor plans, um, which are supposed to engender kind of creativity and collaboration. Uh, what they found was that face-to-face -face interactions dropped and digital communications uh, increased. Um, <laughs> it's kind of a counterintuitive thing, but you know, I, I think we've probably all experienced it where instead of getting up and talking to your colleague who sits a couple of desks away, you slack them because you don't want everybody to overhear your conversation. Mm. And um, you know, so, so the open floor plan as it, you know, as it's most popularly conceived, doesn't really do anyone any favors. And so the view that, that we've taken at Room is that it, it's, you know, the mistake that companies make is that they try to shove all of these different types of activities into a single kind of one-size-fits-all format. Um, but really, the 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 way to make an office uh, work is to design for different types of spaces that will accommodate different types of activities. Everybody has a different style for working. Um, everybody uh, also during the course of a day 
uh, will have different types of requirements for collaboration or privacy. Um, and so, you know, we really encourage our customers to design for these different areas. And in our own office, we've designed for um, that type of variety as well. You know, so we have we have a coffee shop environment where people are should you know free to work. Uh, we have our workstations. We have semi-private uh, areas for informal meetings and hangouts. Uh, and of course, we have conference rooms and, and of course, we have phone booths. So that's really interesting. And I love what you guys are doing. Essentially, like you don't have to pay anyone. You don't have to pay the city. You don't have to figure out how to actually get the regulations uh, open to constructing some sort of cubicle or some sort of thing. You just <laughs> you can just buy one for a moment room and then put it in your office and all of a sudden people now go from this like cloistered environment or uh, open environment and they can go and find themselves some some space um exactly I, and i wonder about are you do you have plans in the future for making a two-person pod <laughs> to like uh like uh because you know if somebody like you said in an open office other people can hear this hear the other talk so go in and and you could have it it'd be pretty intimate though that's that's the only thing i can see yeah we we absolutely uh that's the most requested mm -hmm. product honestly from our existing customer base um and we have so we've we've sold to now over 2400 unique businesses so we talk to uh business owners facilities managers workplace experience professionals constantly um and you know they they do tell us that there there's a very strong need uh, not just for the one-person phone booth, but for the kind of small team huddle room or the interview room. Uh, so we we are working. Um, we you know next year we will be introducing uh, purpose-built meeting rooms, um, and th so that will also kind of apply the same principles that we have today in terms of um, shipping flat to offices and assembling on site and and all of that. Um, I think one of the things that you started talking a little bit about is what happens when you have modularity and adaptability. Um, you know, and when you think about the modularity of software and having plug and play solutions, uh, that's very much the way that we're, that we're viewing the office, right? It used to be that for interior architects, uh, they, would work with a client and design a space and have a hypothesis for how people would interact in that space and behave in that space. And the thing about fixed construction is like, you know, it, it's very expensive to, to build and it's also fixed. So the interior architects would, 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 you know, put a floor plan together. They would, people would move in and then they would uh, behave in a certain way. And the next opportunity to make an uh, adaptation is five or 10 years later when uh, there's a major renovation. That's, and that's, that's just, you know, the, it's just such a slow process. Um, and it's impossible to apply kind of the digital principles of user experience design and uh, fast iterations, fast prototyping. Um, but, you know, as we move towards a world of more modular space, then all of a sudden you create a world in which modularity enables iteration and uh, iteration enables human-centered design within the office. So what we really believe we're doing at Room is ushering in a new uh, uh, stage, a, a new way of working where um, you can really put people at the, at the forefront and make room for people in the office, make room for, for better workplace environments. Uh, so this gets into something really interesting. We talked a little bit about it when we first started talking uh, before we started recording, which is that uh, as soon as room puts one on wheels and makes it autonomous um, and also provides a uh, living space, <laughs> then I want to, I want to buy one. Uh, and, and so it also gets into that as well, because I've had an idea for a long time of uh, essentially uh, getting a sprinter and turning it into a, a workspace uh, mm -hmm. and then renting it out. Um, and 
I think that would be really cool. And it goes into this modular thing as well, because not only are we thinking about offices being modular, but also if you have a remote work, then all of life can become modularized as well. Uh, and so I think it would be really cool to, uh, I don't, for me personally, it's my dream to go and into the mountains. And once there's satellite internet, be able to work from the mountains. And then if I need to go to San Francisco or wherever, I can, I can also go there in, in that van as well. And I, I think other people might share that dream. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I mean, the, the I, given the the way that we work has changed over the last ten years, uh, the the distinction in the lines between home and office and travel and road, they really are all blurring. Mm. And uh, it's 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 you know it, it it's causing a lot of um, creating a lot of challenges for. Uh, the way that offices are designed and, and the way that even apartment buildings are designed. Um, apartment buildings, you know, we're here headquartered in New York and Soho, um, but we hear often from real estate developers uh, in New York where if, if they're uh, designing one, you know, uh, an apartment building, the business amenity center becomes so much more important than it was even just mm -hmm. 10 years ago because people are working from home. Um, and in offices, I think the number, the stats say that, you know, on any given day, you have somewhere between 50 and 70% of the workforce in the office. So what do you do with all of this, uh, you know, unspoken for uh, real estate that, that companies are sitting on? Um, and it becomes, it becomes really challenging because, you know, on the one hand, people want to live in cities and urbanization is only accelerating, right? Because it's, it's where vibrant life is. Uh, but then on the other hand, um, you know, the, it, the, the, the workplace is less fixed. Um, and even if people live in cities, they might be working out of a coffee shop instead of at the office. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it does create this really interesting new uh, work dynamic uh, that really requires as much flexibility and as much adaptability in the workplace as possible. So that this, okay, I'm uh, really excited where we're about to take this. So it makes me think about how in San Francisco, you usually find what hap what's happening in San Francisco usually happens to a lot of other urban areas around five years later. Um, and the biggest one that's coming to mind is the co-living space. Cause you mentioned that um, office uh, residential developers are now starting to build these things inside of they had already been building them but they're now being used much more these uh places where people can work uh inside of their their buildings um and then it reminds me of co-living which is now popular in new york i believe too and is starting to get popular in other places as well and there's this kind of like and it's interesting because there's a there's a theme of it that i want to bring into which is that in san francisco a lot of people do that as a sneaky way of finding jobs because uh, they go and they live in the co-living space with all the other people who um, uh, who are in tech companies and that's how they meet other people and they, uh, and they network basically by their living. And it goes into this blurring between um, live, living and working, which some people have a problem with, other people actually enjoy. Um, and I don't, I'm not going to put a value judgment on either one. But, um, and then it gets into this other theme, which I was thinking about today, which is like, I don't know if you saw, but in Delhi, um, there's an emergency because of uh, the smog that's in the city. Um, and so in the developing world, we have a whole bunch of cities that are just like magnets for people coming from the outside of the outside of in the countryside. And they're all coming in to the cities. And that is creating a lot of pollution problems in a way that used to happen in, 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 the, in Europe and the United States. It doesn't happen as much anymore. Um, and, I, and it makes me think about remote work because they're all coming to these cities because of what you mentioned, this vibrancy and this opportunity for work that just doesn't exist inside of the countryside. And then the common conventional wisdom is that m robots are about to put a whole bunch of people out of jobs. Um, and then there's another thread of that wisdom that says remote work is about to become really popular but I doubt it's going to become as popular in the developing world. And I doubt that I actually doubt that the robots are going to take all of our jobs as well. Um, and I don't really have a question out of this, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts on anything I just said about that co-living 
and this urbanization type of thing that's happening. Yeah, it, it is. It's really um, fascinating. Uh, I, I mean, I guess just on the co-living side, you see it also in the way people want to travel uh, for work as well. Um, in, you know, I, I remember before I lived in New York, I remember coming to New York and staying at Ace Hotel. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but, um, you know, the lobby, you, you go into the lobby during the day and it's just packed with people sitting in front of their laptops mm. and working. Um, and it's kind of a, a cool, um, hip, lounge area rather than a traditional lobby but it's set, been set up where people can stay there and work and it is I, I see this trend really everywhere now um, so it, it's the co-living phenomenon is definitely going to continue taking off right mm. and it's a way also for I think for people to as you said find jobs build community and, and all of these things um, I think that uh, what you were saying earlier about um, how they're, they're, uh, about remote work, there there really are these very interesting trends that are somewhat at odds with each other, right? Like, and I, I think people have been claiming that the uh, that remote work, decentralized uh, work, would would become kind of the the dominant way of working ever since the internet mm -hmm. like in, since the mid 90s people have been talking about how it would reverse the trend of urbanization but in fact what we've seen is really the opposite mm -hmm. so i i i do think actually like uh technologies today for communication collaboration will enable more and more freedom for people to work from anywhere but it's also been clear that you know people vote with their feet and people are moving in at increasing rates to cities yeah and it's yeah. so it's something it's something else that about the city that the it's not just the 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 work but it's also something about the vibrancy and the intellectual stimulation I mean, I, and I, th I think that in developing countries, or I guess I should say middle income countries, the, uh, I think most of it is still those like menial jobs of like taxis, uh, um, restaurants, uh, all, all of those different things. But then it's, but I think from what I'm getting from your saying, but even then it's like from the countryside where there's no opportunity for any sort of like mobility, either in job or in uh, intellectual stimulation or anything going on. I mean, I think that's a huge thing about being young too, is that, is that when you're young, you don't want to stay in the city. And I think that might be a human, a, a human thing rather than just an, a, 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 an American idea or something like that. What do you think? What do you, what do you mean that people don't want to stay in a city? So, or stay, stay in the country. So yeah. that a young person, you grew up in the young, young person, you grew up in your hometown and you're like, I don't want to stay here. I want to go to the big city. I want to find out what's going on with why everybody else is going there. I mean, it's it's an exciting time, right? Like, it's like you have the in New York, you have the the best food in the world. You have and everything is walking distance, and uh, and you have um, the you know there are external network effects mm. when it comes to cities, mm. uh, where you're going. The chance that you're going to bump into people doing really interesting things is is higher in cities, right? So. Um, Cities are, um, you know, engines for serendipity and for uh, creativity and, um, you know, cities are only going to become more and more important. They're also more environmentally friendly than having kind of urban sprawl, right? So mm. uh, space is going to be uh, come at even more of a premium in coming years, even if there is an increase in remote work. Right. It's just it's, it's become very, very clear um, that, you know, people want to live in, in cities um, as long as cities are solving the basic problems of uh, sanitation and safety um, and public safety, you know, uh, public health, then um, people will continue to flock to cities. I've always been, you know, I remember um, hearing an interview with Tony Shea, the um, founder of Zappos. 
And he was talking about um, how productivity scales within organizations. And his claim was that, you know, everybody thinks that um, as organizational units grow bigger and bigger, they become more process oriented, slower, more bureaucratic and less productive. But, uh, and that's generally true, you know, when you think about the way a Fortune 500 corporation works in comparison to the way a startup operates. Uh, but I think uh, he made the point that cities seem to be the exception. Mm. I, I think it's why he uh, ended up investing a ton in um, the rejuvenation of Las Vegas. But his point was that cities are actually um, are a counterexample. They're an organizational unit that mm. actually becomes more productive the larger it gets. And uh, that that's a really kind of fascinating um, concept. Uh, but you know, I, I guess tying it back to room, we think of ourselves as being in the business of space and how to make space uh, more efficient, more productive, more creative, healthier uh, for, for, for people. Um, and we wouldn't be in a business if there weren't an increasing premium on space. And if we didn't really, really believe that there is this, um, you know, beautiful thing about uh, propinquity. Or, actually, I'm not sure. How do you say that word? It's the word that talk, that means people interacting on a face-to-face basis. Um, Interesting. I don't think I've known that word. Yeah, I think it's a I'll find a way to propinquity. I believe propinquity. Interesting. If I'm wrong about what that word means, then we'll have to delete this part of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's really interesting in the cities. So we've got cities. As you were talking about that, it came, I came up with the question. It's is the thing I constantly talk about on the show. That we've got globalization starting around 1800s is really that when it started to come into full swing, swing people kind of really moving into cities and really create the city as an organizational unit, as you were talking about, really starting to grow. Um, and then it seems to me that we're in a process of cultural evolution. And I do believe that culture also came with an evolutionary advantage. Um, and so we're adapting ourselves to cities uh, and it's not quite clear what that looks like yet. It does look like that the future of our planet and the future of an environmentally friendly planet will be a lot of people living in cities and nature being preserved. Uh, uh, and also, I think the coolest thing would be is if we could somehow merge nature with the cities. Um, and I think I see avenues for that happening uh, once we have uh, self-driving cars or even autonomous airplanes or autonomous uh, air vehicles uh, delivering all the goods that we need as a human being and then transportation, you know, on these scooters or autonomous like personal vehicles, maybe, you know, maybe in 10 years, we'll see a room uh, with four wheels on it, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. going around these cities that don't have cars anymore. Um, so yeah, I, I do. So, so it seems to me, and this is the question, are we adapting to cities? Um, and, and what does the end process end point of an adaptation look like to cities and recognizing that there are no endpoints and, and, evolution or anything like that and i'm you know um yeah i'm curious what your thoughts are on that one are oh i'm, I'm curious uh, the, um you know transportation has historically been a huge shaper mm-hmm. of of cities um and i i i am really curious to see what happens with autonomous driving and whether that contributes to increasing urbanization mm-hmm. or uh, or subtracts from it. Um, I, I, I mean, you, you meant you, you brought it up. Is that something that you've uh, thought about uh, or talked about in previous podcasts? Like, how, as we move towards this world of self-driving cars, what is that going to do to the fabric of cities and, and how people move around? Well, I, I'm not sure I've talked about it before. I've thought a lot about it. Uh, and it makes me think of the transition in the United States from the East Coast to the West Coast. Most of the cities in the West Coast are built off of a suburban model, which was highly dependent on the car. 
Um, and so the, in this way, culture adapted to the current technology that was being used when the cities were built. Um, and so it, 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 I think it's an open question as to, and I think it has a lot to do with intention and our intention, because there is an element of these cities that like LA and, and to some, the Bay Area, um, not necessarily San Francisco, but the Bay Area, um, Houston, Dallas, uh, Denver, uh, Seattle. Um, there is an element, I do believe, of corporate interest that came into designing these cities towards the car. It, and I, 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 don't, I don't know how anybody would even prove that, but um, I, I think there is a lot of intention and thought that needs to be put into how we design the cities of the future. Also, another problem I see is that um, as in the West, we're going to start like in San Francisco, you're already seeing it, which is that San Francisco is a, a city, a playground for, for the rich and um, every, the middle class is essentially continuously pushed out of, of San Francisco. Um, and that is going to be an interesting thing as well. Cause yeah. And in, in you're seeing in the developed developing world as well as like, uh, places like Nigeria or Bangkok or, or, or in Lagos or, or Bangkok or Sao Paulo. It's like, it's a very s similar thing where the inside is very nice to live in. It's expensive. And then the outside is like whew, gnarly, gnarly, gnarly places. Um, so yeah, I think these are open questions and I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I mean, what you, what you are saying, what it reminds me of is, uh, the the old battle in the 70s in new york city between jane jacobs and uh robert moses are you, are you familiar with nope and what happened what happened there i mean jane jacobs is, is uh both i guess are visionaries when it comes to city development and city planning but really at the opposite ends of um of, of the spectrum when it comes to how cities should develop but jane jacobs wrote this book called the death and life of great american cities um, and she was an advocate. She uh, lived in the West Village, um, which, if you've you know if you've been to New York before or visited, is um, it's the one part of Manhattan that's not really on a grid. Uh, it's a lot of old building stock, um, and it's just um, it's it's the most walkable part. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's, you know, full of restaurants and coffee shops and bookstores. Um, and it's not kind of like uh, skyscrapers. It's very human scale. Mm. Um, and that is the most expensive place to live in New York City because that's where people want to be. Yep. But the variety of housing stock is such that it is, uh, it's not exclusively kind of like the, the, the wealthiest people. There's, yeah. there are really old buildings and, uh, you know, mixed income type of, um, of housing situations, which contributes to the richness of, of, you know, experience in that part of, of, uh, of New York. And there's probably been a little bit of gentrification even more so than like, um, that, that has continued, but, you know, I actually do think, cities thrive when they are they feel very human and diverse and i just i just don't see even if with autonomous vehicles i don't see that going away you know uh, robert moses was on the opposite side of the spectrum where he was advocating for these for highways to be built in new york to really carve it up and if it, it you know build building around the the automobile becomes a much more dehumanizing experience. Mm -hmm. um, and it, uh, it really tears apart the fabric of neighborhoods and communities. If you just think about, you know, uh, the housing around highways, like nothing pretty mm -hmm. or nice comes to mind, right? So, you know, I guess just talking about this, it does make me think, um, that even with autonomous vehicles, this very human aspect of walking around and enjoying a diversity of experiences and diversity of um, of places, it just it's just too human and too fundamental to go away. Would be would be my opinion. Mm. Mm. 
I think that's a really good point about the cities and the uh, cities designed to, it's dehumanizing to be in a car. But this is why I think, and it, it's a small, small change so far, but it might be indicative of something larger. And I saw it all around the world. I remember going to Paris last year and seeing a bunch of scooters all around. Um, and so if we pair that kind of individual mobility thing, you know, in Europe, it, it's already kind of, they already got the train set up and that it's all already works. In the US, it'd be much harder to do, I think. But to have like a, a, a city where most of the people are getting around in these vehicles that get them where they need to go within the space of about 30 minutes, um, 20 to 30 minutes uh, using these, these mobility devices. And then I see a world where um, eventually we will get autonomous. And I think I already saw some stuff of this about in China already of like, um, of autonomous delivery drones and stuff like that. Cause that's, you know, that's reason why you have these big trucks moving through San Francisco is a lot of deliveries, but that makes me think about a restaurant and like a restaurant needs a lot of deliveries. And I wonder like, would the, yeah. this, the sky just be full of these drones that are just delivering these, uh, these yeah. restaurants? I don't know. Well, uh, it, it's funny. I'm reminded again of this of this um, this argument that James Jacobs makes about like safety in cities, mm. and um, she talks about how like it's it's the corner butcher shop and the the people who frequent it and the the owner uh, you know of it who is watching children on sidewalks like mm. and that's actually ends up being the safest environment where you have people who feel ownership and who are very present locally. And I do fear, I do fear a world in which everything becomes so automated and so um, uh, like on demand uh, that, you know, I think it would be a real shame to lose that sense of the, the kind of like neighborhood bustle that actually speaks to community safety you know um and if everything is a drone or being delivered by a drone or by some kind of like automated uh or self-driving like sidewalk truck or something like that um you know i i, I think I, I bet there would be some you know non-trivial ex um, implications when it comes to safety um and to pedestrian um behaviors yeah you, this is a very good point. It essentially, and it, it, there's the safety aspect of it, but then there's also the meaning aspect of it because we, a lot, humans derive their meaning, a lot of their meaning from their ability to help other people. Um, and so, in a community, community, it's usually the the number one question that anybody joining a community needs to ask themselves is how can I contribute to that community? Because that's the way that humans kind of interact. It's like we're we're in this exchange driven. Uh, and it's not really a pointed exchange driven thing. It's like, just like that's our natural human inclination is to be of service to, to help others. And, um, and when we are, all of our food is delivered by drones, all of our food is cooked by robots is, uh, all these different things are then taken over by ro robots. It, we, we will have a crisis of meaning essentially as to how we can, you know, if, if, if I'm in my room and just everything's being delivered to me uh, and then I'm, you know, anytime I need entertainment, I'm just going on VR and it's like, it's the, it's yeah. the, I think that's that sense of loneliness, which then again goes back into that city thing we were talking about earlier is because the city is where most people end up in this state of loneliness, even though they're surrounded by people. Um, yeah, go for it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you talked a little bit earlier, uh, I think maybe before we started the podcast about the relationship between technology and stress and, you know, mental health and well-being. Um, what, what's your view on the responsibility that, you know, founders have who are building these technologies that might be, that might, you know, point towards a fairly dehumanized endpoint <laughs> yeah um like what 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 kind of i don't know what what are the, what responsibility in your opinion should these founders have and this is funny because i usually ask other people this question i usually don't get asked this question um so i th think it's complicated because first of all we don't know what the things we are going to create what the ultimate blowback of the things that we create are I do think it's wise to really put a lot of thought into that. And I think that a lot of the hype in the, in the startup tech media is that 
break things and you know break things fast and and that that that's the good way to go it just don't it doesn't matter and i think that's that's probably why we're seeing some of the things we're doing we're seeing but then again they couldn't i don't think mark zuckerberg when when you when you create a thing like that and it takes off it's a co-creation between both the people who have started it and the users themselves and it's the same thing that like people are, are upset that we're in this media cycle of outrage and that outrage is the only thing, the only way that you can um, market something quickly is, is you make it outrageous so that people have an emotional reaction to it. Like, but it's not only the people who are doing that, who are making the outrageous content that, that are responsible for it. It's also the people consuming it. And it's also us every time, every single time that we hit a click <clears throat> article, uh, we have a little bit of a responsibility for creating that media environment, which we're also upset about, which makes sense. I mean, and so it, it is, it's a very, very difficult question, but I would, this is part of the thing I do with this podcast is like ask people about the ethics of this. And I think it's really important to at least ask the question. Um, Cause if you're not asking the question, I think that's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. So, I would love to go maybe in the last 10, 10, 15 minutes or so. I'd love to talk about the business uh, side of, of what you guys are doing and, and who was your first customer? Uh, that's a great question. Um, so as I mentioned early on, um, we had these two uh, angel investors who had the idea uh, for phone booths. Um, one was Ryan Peterson, founder of Flexport, um, and then the other was Henrik Zilmer, founder of a company called AirHelp. Um, and when we first started, we were uh, basically camping out at the at AirHelp's office in New York. Mm. And uh, one of the very first prototypes that we built was in the uh, corner of that office. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, you could say that AirHelp was one of our first customers. Um, Flexport was one of them as well. And then we started also selling to um, uh, a couple of flexible office providers, mm. um, like, like Notel. Notel had a, a huge demand for, for phone booths, and um, they were testing out different options and ulti uh, ultimately selected ours. Um, but they were one of our um, first customers as well. And so... You mentioned you had done operations for another startup that had come out of YC and have you gained a lot of value from that network in terms of uh, finding, finding new customers? Like, is that where a lot of the customers have come from or if you found like new channels that were uh, just came out of the blue from doing random stuff? Yeah. YC was um, a tremendous resource for us in terms of being able to talk to customers and mm -hmm. accessing that network of uh you know we, we originally set out to solve a problem for that we kind of had to experience ourselves right and so talking to other yc founders who were going through scaling challenges going through office moves um and experiencing the 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 real pain of open floor plans that was our earliest customer discovery mm. right um i talked to like a, the first month or two of just even trying to evaluate whether this was more than just a, a side project uh, was about talking to customers um, and those initial conversations I sourced predominantly through the YC community. Hmm. And how does that work? Does it like it's, it's cause uh, so I've been starting to have these, these customer conversations as well. And I, you know, I read a lot about how other people do it. Um, and so is it like, you reach out to a YC partner, you looked on LinkedIn or something like that, and then you ask them for an introduction to a customer or how does that like actually specifically work? Well, like once you're, once you go through it, then you basically have like uh, open access to the community and mm. they have a little, uh, you know, uh, it's very easy to um, access any YC alum. Mm. Mm. And then it's, it's about, yeah, just like, Hey, like figuring out who, uh, who moved recently and um uh and there, there's a really um amazing kind of like giving culture um within yc and i think within just kind of the startup community and ethos um generally right 
Um, I think the the innovation of uh, Silicon Valley was really about sharing in wealth creation, right? And in having this uh, ethos of not just making money and hoarding it, but of recycling it by investing in the next generation of entrepreneurs and whatnot. Um, so um, there's definitely that kind of uh, ethos within the YC community. Uh, successful entrepreneurs do angel invest in um, the next generation of YC founders. There's a lot of openness when it comes to um, these type of customer development uh, conversations or just uh, beta testing things and giving feedback. Um, so it's been a really valuable community and resource. So that's really interesting. This gets into a point that I'm I've now doing this side series um, on the rise of technology innovation outside of Silicon Valley. And I think it is that key thing that you mentioned of the, and I think it is spreading. This is something that I'm going to investigate, but I think the, the giving back mentality is spreading to all these different ecosystems. And that was the main thing. That was the main cultural learning. I think that was being exported in the first uh, kind of run up to this with, with 500 startups and Y Combinator uh, and a few other kind of people going out to the rest of the world and talking about startups. And I think that nature of giving back is that first kind of like step that needs to happen before any sort of ecosystem arises. Because in Brazil, like a lot of the investors are kind of gnarly. Like they, they come from real estate and they're, they're expecting, you know, like their two year returns, like how much are you going to return on this, on this money? Um, yeah. And that just doesn't work <laughs> if you're, if you're an early stage, uh, early stage company building. Yeah, in my in my early twenties, um, I worked for a nonprofit called Endeavor for a couple of years. Um, and Endeavor basically, its mission is to um, to encourage high impact entrepreneurship and to provide role models for high impact entrepreneurship around the world. And they started off specifically targeting um, emerging markets like Argentina and Brazil and um, you know, really all over the world. But it, it is interesting. The, the, the concept of an investor buying a minority share of a business and letting the founder control the fate of that business is really a very novel concept uh, um, that uh, has not become kind of like widespread, right? It's like you said, the, the amount of trust and the amount of um, faith in share, sharing the spoils of wealth creation, like that's a special thing. Mm. Um, and, you know, you even see differences between like West Coast investors and East Coast investors. East Coast investors are uh, oftentimes more private equity oriented mm. uh, rather than like kind of minority stakes venture oriented. Um, so it, it, it's a really special thing. I forget. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and this leads me to, to my next question. Why did you choose to, why did you choose to live in New York and move to New York and set up the company there? I, uh, was already living in New York, um, with my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife. Um, and we love New York, you know, uh, if you, you could probably tell from, from this podcast that, um, I really love cities and uh, I really believe that New York is the uh, best city in the US. Um, so I just loved being here. Um, and then on top of that, our product, you know, it, in, it has a very deep relationship with the way that commercial real estate works. And so uh, it's a huge advantage for us as a company to be co-located with mm -hmm. uh, the financial capital that goes into uh, funding commercial real estate and uh, in um, being close to the architect and designer community. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the, the, the wave of flexible office providers, um, including WeWork, that have really grown and um, are satisfy, satisfy, uh, satisfying, or, sorry, satisfying the, the demand for flexibility. Uh, they're all headquartered here in New York. So companies like Industrious and Convene and Breather, um, mm. you know, it's, it's really 
all of these companies are a subway ride away for us. Hmm. Uh, so it's been, a, it's, I, I personally can't imagine uh, what we are doing um, getting started anywhere else. So this gets into something that, that is the other, that is the other show. Cause there's a, there's a particular, it's that being close to customers. And I interviewed somebody, Drupad Karwa, who, uh, of Haiku Jam, and he was born in the UK, or born in India, but then at three years old, moved to the UK, and then grew up his whole life in the UK, and then started this company, and then randomly got popular in um, in India and, and Philippines, um, and even though they were targeting the Western market, and then decided to make the move to get to go close to their customers and understand why they're using the app, and then and then once they did that, it was easy to find investment and everything like that, uh, and and it's so it's so it's there. And this is this is the the thesis that I have with which I'm going to investigate with my show, which is that um, you have capital in Silicon Valley, you have capital as we just discussed. You have this this the smart money, so to say, that understands these ten year uh, return things and kind of sharing in the wealth. Um, but then the actual customers are all over the world, and and now that the tools of remote work and distributed work are working, but not only that, also just the ethos and the understanding about what it means to build a technology company and now business is essentially technology. I don't, I don't think those two things can be separated anymore. Um, although I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts on that are as well. We know we're, we're running, we're running out of time, but, but uh, I feel like we could do another show on that, on that particular thing. Um, I don't know if anything kind of in this last couple of minutes, anything that you want to get out there from, from anything I just said? Uh, there's a lot, a lot of different topics. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so cool. So how can people find out more about uh, what you're working on or you in particular and room? Yeah. Uh, it's very easy. It is room.com. And um that is the, the easiest way to learn more about what we're doing as a company and our mission to uh, make room for people and better workplaces, workplace environments. Um, and then uh, I'm on Twitter at underscore B Chen. Cool. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Cool. Thanks for having me, sir. Thanks for tuning into the show. If you liked it, please go ahead and find us on iTunes or Spotify and hit the subscribe button. I'll publish each episode by Monday morning before your commute, so make sure to check in then. And this is a reminder to just own your crazy because the challenges that this world will be facing over the next 100 years will require us to think way outside the box. As Hunter S. Thompson said, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. Thanks, have a great day.